0: Hello and welcome to Queer Crime episode number 10. I'm your host, Patrick. As you know by now, Queer Crime is the podcast that discusses crimes committed against and committed by LGBT plus people. The contents of this podcast are not intended to offend anyone within the LGBT plus community or beyond. They're simply a way of reminding ourselves that there are some horrible fuckers out there, regardless of their sexual identity. As you've probably guessed, The language and content within this podcast is intended for a mature audience and those with an open mind. If you have bigoted views, stop listening now. Bigoted views are not welcome. Conversely, if you have really nice views, comments or suggestions, please send them my way. Also, please bear with me while I sort out any storytelling or sound issues. I'm not a journalist, nor am I a sound engineer. I'm just an Irish guy living in England who loves podcasting, loves researching, and loves telling these people's stories, but also without the technological skills to make my episodes completely perfect. It takes time to get everything right, and hopefully one day I'll nail it. But until then, thanks for your patience and your perseverance. If you could rate my podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. The support and comments from you guys, my queer crimers, are just the best, and one of the reasons that I keep going. It makes me realise that there are some very kind and supportive people out there. Thank you. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to follow me on Twitter, on crime underscore queer. I'd love to hear from you. Before I start with the episode, I want to set some context in terms of what was happening in the gay High holy calendar. It's 2013. The winner of Best Musical at the Tonys was Kinky Boots. The winner of Outstanding Comedy Series at the Emmys was Modern Family. Record of the Year at the Grammys was Somebody That I Used to Know by Gotcha featuring Kimbra. And Best Picture at the Oscars was Argo. I would like to thank the following sources for helping me piece this story together. These were The Guardian, ABC and the Sydney Morning Herald. Advance warning. This story contains descriptions of a violent crime. It won't be suitable for all listeners. (laughs) Central Bay is a harbour-side suburb of Sydney, Australia. It is about three kilometres from Sydney's Central Business District. It's a beautiful self-contained suburb on the shoreline which offers breathtaking views of the harbour and offers many shops, restaurants and cafes for the residents of the area. It's a popular spot for young professionals and middle-class families. One such young professional who lived there was Morgan Huxley. Morgan Huxley was born on the 5th of June 1982. He was the youngest child of D. Huxley, the famous illustrator and author of children's books. Morgan was very close to his siblings. He had an older sister called Tiffany and an older brother called Oliver. As a young boy, he was likeable, funny, personable and popular. He was a sweet little boy whose easygoing and affable personality meant that he easily formed lasting friendships in his childhood. Friendships that continued into his adulthood. One of these friendships was with Chris Moroni. Morgan met Chris, his best friend as a child, and their friendship was solid and strong, filled with laughter, joy, shared experiences and the happiest of memories. Morgan and Chris were inseparable and were always reliable, as best friends are. As a teenager, Morgan discovered an unquenchable passion for the water, and he spent as much time as possible in and around the harbour waters around Sydney. He studied at the Technical and Further Education College and also spent a year on an ocean engineering course. In 2009, he started his own business linked to his passion for the water, which involved building boat sheds and jetties. He threw himself into his business and he worked hard to make his business a success. He was at the beginning of carving out a successful life for himself. On the 7th of September 2013, Morgan put on his blue t-shirt Cargo shorts, and flip flops, and made his way to Lane Cove to a party to celebrate the engagement of his best friend, Chris. It was a good evening, full of laughter and celebrations for Chris and his fiancee, Philippa. At some point during the evening, Morgan managed to lose his flip flops, but it didn't bother him. He was having a good time. As the night drew to a close, Morgan decided to share a taxi home with Chris and Philippa, as they lived just around the corner from him. As the taxi neared home, Morgan asked Chris and Philippa if they wanted a nightcap. Chris smiled but declined, saying, nah mate, we're done, catch up tomorrow. Morgan had no problem going to the pub on his own as he was heading to the Oaks, his favourite pub, where he knew many of the locals so there was a chance he wouldn't be on his own. Chris and Philippa grinned as they watched Morgan set off up the street to the Oaks, completely barefoot. The taxi pulled away and Morgan's first stop before having a drink was to get some cash from the ATM. He was a bit intoxicated from the festivities earlier in the night, and it took him slightly longer than expected to get some money from the machine. During this time, he turned and made some small talk to the person who was waiting behind him, a skinny young ginger guy in his early 20s. After Morgan successfully grabbed some cash from the ATM, he made his way to the Oaks. It was around 1am when Morgan entered the pub and ordered a beer. Initially, he tried to go into a nicer bar towards the back of the premises, but he wasn't allowed in because he wasn't wearing any footwear. So he decided to sit on a high stool at a table near the front windows of the pub. While sitting on the stool, he occasionally played around with his phone, looked at the large TV screen on the wall, played around with his phone again, and so on. Morgan leisurely enjoyed his final drink of the evening before he had to walk the short journey back to his apartment. It was a night like any other. He didn't know that his every movement was being watched through the window. After about half an hour, Morgan was still on his first and only beer in the Oaks. Around 1.30am, a a young waitress approached Morgan and told him that it was closing time. Morgan duly complied with the closing time request and he got up off his stool and made his way out into the street. He set off home in the direction of his apartment. When Morgan reached home, he made his way to his bedroom. He opened a window and he fell down on the bed, absolutely exhausted and still fully clothed. His flatmate, a 24-year-old Irish girl called Jean, got up and closed the bedroom door when she heard Morgan come in, and then she fell back asleep. Fifteen minutes later, she heard two knocks on the front door of the apartment, and she assumed it was just one of Morgan's friends, so she rolled over and fell asleep again. Morgan, who was now passed out from his fun evening out, and Jean, who had fallen asleep again, didn't realise that someone had entered their apartment. Morgan had forgotten to lock the front door when he came in. The intruders stealthily made their way upstairs and crept into Morgan's room. Quietly they made their way to Morgan's bed, and they pulled down his shorts and lifted his shirt. They started groping Morgan. Jesus Christ, it's the stuff of fucking nightmares. As he was being groped, Morgan jolted awake. At the very moment he jolted awake, he felt a searing pain. He had been stabbed. A knife was plunged into his back and his neck. He tried to fight back but he was stabbed again and again. He was stabbed in his shoulders and his arms. The stabbing continued. It was relentless. Such was the ferocity of the attack that the tip of the knife got lodged in Morgan's head. His carotid arteries were severed. He couldn't scream for help. He was choking on his own blood. His attacker stabbed him a total of 28 times and then left as stealthily and as quietly as they had entered. Morgan who was clinging on to life managed to get off the bed but he collapsed at his bedroom door. At this time his flatmate Jean heard Morgan falling over and what she assumed were noises of snoring. But the noises were in fact Morgan choking on his own blood. She lay there for a moment, listening for any further noises. The curiosity got the better of her and she opened her bedroom door. She was immediately confronted with a sight of pure horror and devastation. Morgan was lying on the floor, covered in blood. She tried to shake him, no response. She cried out his name, but no response. In her panic state, she dialed 999, the emergency services number in Ireland and England, but not the emergency services number in Australia, which is 000. The call didn't connect. She phoned her boyfriend and asked him to phone emergency services. In the meantime, she started doing chest compressions in Morgan until the paramedics arrived. They were at the apartment within minutes. The paramedics discovered that Morgan was just about still alive. They rushed him to the hospital and the police cordoned off the apartment block and the streets in the surrounding area. Jean, who was traumatised and covered in blood after trying to save Morgan's life, was brought to the police station to give her statement. She was overcome with shock and grief. She could tell them very little other than she heard a knock, heard Morgan fall over and heard the gurgling noises that Morgan was making as he lay on the floor. Utterly horrendous. When Morgan arrived at the Royal North Shore Hospital, doctors did everything they could to save him. At 1.30am Morgan had left the Oaks pub after having a nightcap following his best friend's engagement party. At 3.30am he was declared dead. He was only 31 years old. The next morning, and just a few hours later, Chris, Morgan's best friend, and his new fiancée, Philippa, decided that they would use the nice weather to go on a long walk back to Chris's parents' house at Lane Cove to pick up their car, which had been left at their engagement party the night before. They set off on their morning walk on a route which took them on a street past Morgan's apartment. As they drew closer to the area where Morgan's apartment block was, they were shocked to see that it had been cordoned off with police and forensic teams everywhere. Chris wasn't sure if Morgan was awake yet, so he called him to let him know about what was happening on his street. Chris's call went straight to voicemail, so he left him a message. They continued on their walk to pick up the car at his parents' house. Soon after he arrived, Chris got the phone call that everyone would dread receiving. Morgan, his best friend, was gone. Morgan's family received the news just before Chris. They were floored. Their world had been rocked and it would never be the same. It was a seemingly random attack. Morgan had no enemies. He was popular, handsome and lovable. Who would want to hurt him? I often think about the job of the police having to tell a loved one that a family member has died, regardless of the circumstances. It must be one of the worst jobs to do. I could never do it. Over the next few days, the police threw a lot of manpower and resources at this tragic crime. They provided support and reassurance to Morgan's family during this incredibly dark time. The newspapers, though, were less empathetic. The media were extremely unhelpful with their reporting of the story. Understandably, Morgan's family were going through turmoil, and they were trying to deal with their overwhelming loss. They did not expect to go through a process of victim-blaming and having Morgan's memory sullied by unsubstantiated claims. The media decided that they would delve into Morgan's private life, and they started to report unfounded claims and stories about him. He was called a ladies' man, a Lothario, Casanova, and a playboy. They ran stories about how he was involved with around 14 women, and the wording of the articles led the public to believe that he was murdered by a female lover who had been spurned or slighted in some way. A news channel even suggested that it was a booty call gone wrong. Essentially, they were saying that Morgan was murdered because he was a ladies' man, and his slutty ways had caught up with him. Complete fucking nonsense and deeply upsetting bullshit for his family to have to go through. This brought the focus of the crime on Morgan, and not the psychopath who killed him. The image being portrayed of Morgan following his death was unfounded, unnecessary, and really unhelpful. His family became very mistrustful of the press, even if members of the press contacted them and pretended to want to tell the true story of Morgan's life and his death. Morgan's friends too were hounded by the press for quotes and interviews. When they should have been grieving and dealing with their loss, they were instead dealing with predatory members of the press. Tragic. The police investigation continued, and they poured through multiple hours of CCTV of Morgan's last movements. They watched him enter the Oaks at about 1am. They watched him as he sat on a high stool and enjoyed his last beer. They watched him leave the bar and walked barefoot down the street towards his apartment. And they watched a young man following him. The young man was wearing a black top and was carrying a bag over his shoulder. The CCTV images also appeared as if he was wearing a chef's trousers or chef's pants. Eventually, the CCTV footage ran out due to the lack of cameras, and they had no more images of Morgan or this mystery man. The police decided to approach businesses in the area to see if they knew anyone who matched the image of the man who was following Morgan. He could have been the last person to see Morgan alive, or he might have been a witness to someone else following Morgan, someone who had not been picked up by CCTV. After visiting multiple businesses, the police approached a small business called the Sydney Cooking School and showed the CCTV image on a laptop to the barista who worked there. The barista confirmed that they knew the person in the image. The image looked like Daniel Kelsall. And Daniel was her colleague. He worked at the Sydney cooking school. The police had found their mystery man from the CCTV. Daniel Kelsall was a 20-year-old baby-faced skinny ginger kid with glasses. He was your typical nerd who looked like he wouldn't harm anyone. He was socially awkward and unassuming you would almost forget he existed after you met him. He had been adopted at birth by Mark and Lynn Kelsall, who were relatively comfortable from a financial perspective, and they gave Daniel a good upbringing in a nice area of Wellington, New Zealand. Growing up, Daniel never had many friends due to his social awkwardness and his ability to get anxious very quickly, which would result in him lashing out. These outbursts made him unpopular and made him appear irrational. No one would want to spend time in the company of someone like that. During his high school years, baby-faced Daniel became aware that he was gay, but he lacked the confidence to do anything about it. He didn't properly explore his sexuality until he went on to study hospitality at the Wellington Institute of Technology. Throughout his later teenage years, Daniel felt he had different disorders and he self-diagnosed himself with ADHD and autism. He went through various medical professionals, provided textbook summaries of his suspected disorders, and he was prescribed various drugs. The truth of the matter was probably that he was feeling lonely because he was unable to make friends, and it was probably also compounded by the fact that he wasn't coping very well without the support of his parents, who had just moved to Sydney. Daniel's mother and father did everything they could to support his development and get him out of his dark funk. They moved him from Wellington in New Zealand to their home in Sydney, Australia. When he got to Sydney, he approached the Sydney Cooking School for a job based on his prior training at the Wellington Institute of Technology. Despite his awkwardness and shyness, he got the job. It was hoped that this job would bring him stability and he would start to settle down and find his way in the world. His new job was based right opposite the Oaks, Morgan Huxley's favourite bar. A few months later, a chance encounter at an ATM between Daniel and Morgan would change the lives of many people forever. On the same day that Daniel was identified in the CCTV footage by his colleague, the police had Daniel in for questioning in order to eliminate him from their inquiries. From the outset, Daniel behaved oddly. The police questioned why images of him walking behind Morgan showed him walking in the opposite direction to where he lived. Daniel said he was going back to work to make sure he had turned the lights off. They asked him why he was practically jogging behind Morgan as Morgan walked home. He said that he was cold, and that sometimes his mother used to tell him that if he was cold, he should go for a jog. The police asked Daniel what had been in the bag that he was carrying over his shoulder. He said that it only contained his jacket, a chef's apron, and some Yu-Gi-Oh! trading cards. He didn't tell them that he was also carrying a large kitchen knife. I had to Google Yu-Gi-Oh! trading cards, as I'd never heard of them. Typical nerd shit, based on the Japanese manga franchise Yu-Gi-Oh! And all the spending money on wine. As the police questioning continued, Daniel said he had no idea who Morgan was and he had never met with him. The CCTV images may have shown that it looked like Daniel was following Morgan, but that was it. There was no interaction between them. Daniel said that he never caught up with Morgan and he never spoke with him. The police asked Daniel if he would be comfortable providing them with a sample of his DNA. Daniel hesitated for a moment and then he declined. This set alarm bells ringing in the minds of the interviewing officers but they still didn't consider him to be a credible suspect because he was too timid, geeky and unimposing. Daniel went home after the questioning and the police carried on with their investigation. Two days later Daniel took a very unusual step. He phoned the police and said I wasn't telling you the entire truth. You know when I said I hadn't spoken to that guy? Well I did. The police met with Daniel in a car park within a few minutes and started questioning him for a second time. This time Daniel claimed that he did catch up with Morgan. Morgan said that he was upset and depressed and Daniel offered to cheer him up. He said that Morgan and Daniel had consensual sex in Morgan's apartment. When Morgan fell asleep, Daniel decided to leave and as he was leaving he saw a blonde woman walking towards Morgan's apartment. He said he didn't want to tell the police about the blonde woman and the sex he had with Morgan because he was too afraid. He didn't want to be implicated in the murder. But the police didn't believe any of it. There was no doubt that Morgan was heterosexual. This was just utter lies coming out of Daniel's mouth. The police knew that Daniel's DNA and possibly his fingerprints were inside Morgan's apartment and that he would eventually be caught. They suspected he had fabricated the story about the blonde woman based solely on the inaccurate and irresponsible speculation in the newspapers about a woman killing Morgan. The police immediately placed Daniel under arrest. It was exactly one month since Morgan's murder. Over the coming days, they found Daniel's fingerprint on the door handle to Morgan's bedroom, and they found his DNA and Morgan's penis. They also found Morgan's blood on the bag that Daniel was wearing the same bag that he brought into police interviews with him. Jesus, he's outrageous as the case against Daniel was mounting, the police contacted daniel's g p Dr. Susan Alman. Susan said that only fifteen months before Morgan's murder, Daniel confessed that he was having intrusive thoughts about killing someone with a knife on his way home from work at night. Daniel's psychiatrist, Matthew Bolton, said that Daniel confessed that he had thought of killing someone just for the thrill of it. This was very damning information from two medical professionals. It would take two and a half years before the case about Morgan's murder would be heard. In the New South Wales Supreme Court on the 16th of March 2015, Daniel gave his testimony. Given the time that elapsed, he had rehearsed and perfected his story. On the stand, he now claimed that when he got back to Morgan's apartment, Daniel fondled Morgan for about 10 minutes before he was hit on the head by someone else who was in the room at the same time. He said that a fight ensued between Morgan and this unknown person, and Daniel ran away. He claimed he didn't tell the police this during the first interview because he was afraid that he would be blamed for the murder. The jury saw right through Daniel's bullshit, There was absolutely no evidence that Morgan was sexually interested in men. There was no evidence of any sexual activity, just Daniel's DNA in Morgan's penis, which was a result of Daniel groping him when he was asleep. Daniel was just a baby-faced, lying, manipulative, remorseless psychopath, and the jury knew it. Two days after Daniel's testimony, the jury took just two hours to find Daniel guilty of murder and indecent assault. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison, with a minimum term of 30 years. It will be 2044 before he is considered for parole. As part of my research, I came across a July 2019 article which reported that Daniel is having so much sex in prison that he is too tired to participate in prison programmes. This is denied by prison authorities, but a source confirmed that this type of activity within the prison system is rife. Jesus. Despite this case been relatively clear-cut, there are still many more questions unresolved. Had Daniel stalked anyone before? Had he attacked anyone before? Had he sexually assaulted anyone before? Why on earth had the media started victim-blaming Morgan? Would they have done the same if it had been a woman who was the victim? How have Daniel's parents coped with this horrible situation? I guess some things we'll never know. I will not finish this episode with Daniel being the last name you hear from me on this case. It's more important to reflect on the truly loved and remarkable person that Morgan was. His family statement outside court summarised it best. His family were too upset to read the statement, so it was read by Jessica Hall, Morgan's ex-girlfriend, who he was still very close to. Quote, An inspiring, generous and loving young man, Morgan was beginning to make his way in the world. He had hopes and dreams that he will never have a chance to realise. He will never get married and enjoy running around the park with his children. We love you, morgues." End quote. The world has progressed so much since discrimination against the LGBT plus community became illegal in many countries around the world. According to the United Nations, there are 195 countries in the world. Out of those 195 countries, it is still illegal to be a gay man in 72 of them. It is still illegal to be a gay woman in 44 of them. And any same-sex activity in 11 of them could result in the death penalty imagine in the year 2021 lgbt plus people around the world are still not being treated fairly or equally some people and some leaders of countries are dicks let's put people with outdated and harmful views including world leaders in a minority and on the wrong side of history by showing solidarity towards lgbt plus people around the globe you've only got one life So live your life with Sparkle and don't hurt anyone, please. Until next time.